This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas de Quincey The English Mail Coach, or The Glory of Motion, Part 1 some twenty or more years before I matriculated at Oxford, Mr. Palmer, MP for Bath, had accomplished two things, very hard to do on our little planet, the Earth, however cheap they may happen to be held by the eccentric people in comets. He had invented mail-coaches, and he had married the daughter of a duke. Footnote regarding the daughter. Lady Madeline Gordon. End of footnote. He was, therefore, just twice as great a man as Galileo, who certainly invented, or discovered, the satellites of Jupiter, those very next things extant to mail-coaches in the two capital points of speed and keeping time, but who did not marry the daughter of a duke. These mail-coaches, as organized by Mr. Palmer, are entitled to a circumstantial notice from myself, having had so large a share in developing the anarchies of my subsequent dreams, an agency which they accomplished, first through velocity, at that time unprecedented. They first revealed the glory of motion, suggesting, at the same time, an undersense not unpleasurable of possible though indefinite danger. Secondly, through grand effects for the eye between lamplight and the darkness upon solitary roads. Thirdly, through animal beauty and power so often displayed in the class of horses selected for this mail service. Fourthly, through the conscious presence of a central intellect, that, in the midst of vast distances, of storms, of darkness, of night, overruled all obstacles into one steady cooperation and a national result. Footnote regarding vast distances. One case was familiar to mail-coach travellers, where two mails in opposite directions, north and south, starting at the same minute from points six hundred miles apart, met almost constantly at a particular bridge which exactly bisected the total distance. End of footnote. To my own feeling, this post-office service recalled some mighty orchestra, where a thousand instruments, all disregarding each other, and so far in danger of discord, yet all obedient as slaves to the supreme baton of some great leader, terminate in a perfection of harmony like that of heart, veins, and arteries, in a healthy animal organization. But finally, that particular element in this whole combination which most impressed myself, and through which it is that to this hour Mr. Palmer's mail-coach system tyrannizes by terror and terrific beauty over my dreams, lay in the awful political mission which at that time it fulfilled. The mail-coach as it was that distributed over the face of the land, like the opening of apocalyptic vials, the heart-shaking news of Trafalgar, of Salamanca, of Vittoria, of Waterloo. These were the harvests that, in the grandeur of their reaping, redeemed the tears and blood in which they had been sown. Neither was the meanest peasant so much below the grandeur and the sorrow of the times as to confound these battles, which were gradually moulding the destinies of Christendom, with the vulgar conflicts of ordinary warfare, which are oftentimes but gladiatorial trials of national prowess. 
the victories of england in this stupendous contest rose of themselves as natural tadums to heaven and it was felt by the thoughtful that such victories at such a crisis of general prostration were not more beneficial to ourselves than finally to france and to the nations of western and central europe through whose pusillanimity it was that the french domination had prospered the mail-coach, as the national organ for publishing these mighty events, became itself a spiritualized and glorified object to an impassioned heart, and naturally, in the Oxford of that day, all hearts were awakened. There were, perhaps, of us gownsmen, two thousand resident in Oxford, and dispersed through five-and-twenty colleges. Footnote regarding residence in Oxford the number on the books was far greater, many of whom kept up an intermitting communication with Oxford, but I speak of those only who were steadily pursuing their academic studies, and of those who resided constantly as fellows. End of footnote. In some of these, the custom permitted the student to keep what are called short terms, that is, the four terms of Michaelmas, Lent, Easter, and Act were kept severally by a residence, in the aggregate, of ninety-one days, or thirteen weeks. Under this interrupted residence, accordingly, it was possible that a student might have a reason for going down to his home four times in the year. This made eight journeys to and fro. And as these homes lay dispersed through all the shires of the island, and most of us disdained all coaches except His Majesty's mail, no city out of London could pretend to so extensive a connection with Mr. Palmer's establishment as Oxford. Naturally, therefore, it became a point of some interest with us, whose journeys revolved every six weeks on average, to look a little into the executive details of the system. With some of these Mr. Palmer had no concern. They rested upon by-laws not unreasonable, enacted by posting-houses for their own benefit, and upon others equally stern, enacted by the inside passengers for the illustration of their own exclusiveness. These last were of a nature to rouse our scorn, from which the transition was not very long to mutiny. Up to this time it had been the fixed assumption of the four inside people, as an old tradition of all public carriages from the reign of Charles the Second, that they, the illustrious Quaternion, constituted a porcelain variety of the human race, whose dignity would have been compromised by exchanging one word of civility with the three miserable Delfware outsides. Even to have kicked an outsider might have been held to attaint the foot concerned in that operation, so that, perhaps, it would have required an act of Parliament to restore its purity of blood. What words, then, could express the horror and the sense of treason in that case which had happened, where all three outsides, the trinity of pariahs, made a vain attempt to sit down at the same breakfast-table or dinner-table with the consecrated four? I myself witnessed such an attempt, and on that occasion a benevolent old gentleman endeavoured to soothe his three holy associates by suggesting that, if the outsides were indicted for this criminal attempt at the next assizes, the court would regard it as a case of lunacy or delirium tremens, rather than of treason. England owes much of her grandeur to the depth of the aristocratic element in her social composition. I am not the man to laugh at it but sometimes it expressed itself in extravagant shapes. 
the course taken with the infatuated outsiders, in the particular attempt which I have noticed, was that the waiter, beckoning them away from the privileged salle à manger, sang out, This way, my good men, and then enticed them away off to the kitchen. But that plan had not always answered. Sometimes, though very rarely, cases occurred where the intruders, being stronger than usual, or more vicious than usual, resolutely refused to move, and so far carried their point as to have a separate table arranged for themselves in a corner of the room. Yet, if an Indian screen could be found ample enough to plant them out from the very eyes of the high table, or dais, it then became possible to assume as a fiction of law that the three Delph fellows, after all, were not present. They could be ignored by the porcelain men, under the maxim that objects not appearing and not existing are governed by the same logical construction. Such now being, at that time, the usages of mail coaches, what was to be done by us of young Oxford? We, the most aristocratic people, who were addicted to the practice of looking down superciliously even upon the insides themselves as often very suspicious characters, were we voluntarily to court indignities? If our dress and bearing sheltered us, generally, from the suspicion of being raff, the name at that period for snobs, we really were such constructively by the place we assumed. If we did not submit to the deep shadow of eclipse, we entered at least the skirts of its penumbra. Footnote regarding snobs. And its antithesis, knobs, arose among the internal fractions of shoemakers perhaps ten years later. Possibly enough, the terms may have existed much earlier, but they were then first made known, picturesquely and effectively, by a trial at some assizes which happened to fix the public attention. End of footnote. And the analogy of theatres was urged against us, where no man can complain of the annoyances incident to the pit or gallery, having his instant remedy in paying the higher price of the boxes. But the soundness of this analogy we disputed. In the case of the theatre, it cannot be pretended that the inferior situations have any separate attractions, unless the pit suits the purpose of the dramatic reporter. But the reporter or critic is a rarity. For most people, the sole benefit is in the price. Whereas, on the contrary, the outside of the mail had its own incommunicable advantages. These we could not forego. The higher price we should willingly have paid, but that was connected with the condition of riding inside, which was insufferable. The air, the freedom of prospect, the proximity to the horses, the elevation of seat, these were what we desired, but, above all, the certain anticipation of purchasing occasional opportunities of driving. Under coercion of this great practical difficulty, we instituted a searching inquiry into the true quality and valuation of the different apartments about the mail. We conducted this inquiry on metaphysical principles, and it was ascertained satisfactorily that the roof of the coach, which some had affected to call the attics, and some the garrets, was really the drawing-room, and the box was the chief ottoman or sofa in that drawing-room whilst it appeared that the inside, which had been traditionally regarded as the only room tenantable by gentlemen, was, in fact, the coal-cellar in disguise. 
great was this jump the very same idea had not long before struck the celestial intellect of china amongst the presents carried out by our first embassy to that country was a state coach it had been specially selected as a personal gift by george the third but the exact mode of using it was a mystery to pekin the ambassador indeed lord mccartney had made some dim and imperfect explanations upon the point but as his excellency communicated these in a diplomatic whisper at the very moment of his departure the celestial mind was very feebly illuminated and it became necessary to call the cabinet council on the grand state question where was the emperor to sit the hammercloth happened to be unusually gorgeous and partly on that consideration but partly also because the box offered the most elevated seat and undeniably went foremost it was resolved by acclamation that the box was the imperial place and for the scoundrel who drove he might sit where he could find a perch the horses therefore being harnessed under a flourish of music and a salute of guns solemnly his imperial majesty ascended his new english throne having the first lord of the treasury on his right hand and the chief jester on his left pekin gloried in the spectacle and in the whole flowery people constructively present by representation there was but one discontented person which was the coachman this mutinous individual looking as black-hearted as he really was audaciously shouted where am i to sit but the privy council incensed by his disloyalty unanimously opened the door and kicked him into the inside he had all the inside places to himself but such is the rapacity of ambition that he was still dissatisfied i say he cried out in an extempore petition addressed to the emperor through the window how am i to catch hold of the reins anyhow was the answer don't trouble me man in my glory through the windows through the keyholes how you please finally this contumacious coachman lengthened the check-strings into a sort of jury-reins communicating with the horses with these he drove as steadily as may be supposed the emperor returned after the briefest of circuits he descended in great pomp from his throne with the severest resolution never to remount it a public thanksgiving was ordered for his majesty's prosperous escape from the disease of a broken neck and the state coach was dedicated forever as a votive offering to the god fo fo whom the learned more accurately called fi fi a revolution of this same chinese character did young oxford of that era effect in the constitution of mail-coach society it was a perfect french revolution and we had good reason to say ça ira. in fact it soon became too popular the public a well-known character particularly disagreeable though slightly respectable and notorious for affecting the chief seats in synagogues had at first loudly opposed this revolution but when the opposition showed itself to be ineffectual our disagreeable friend went into it with headlong zeal at first it was a sort of race between us and as the public is usually above thirty say generally from thirty to fifty years old naturally we of young oxford that averaged about twenty had the advantage 
Then the public took to bribing, giving fees to horsekeepers, etc., who hired out their persons as warming pans on the box seat. That, you know, was shocking to our moral sensibilities. Come to bribery, we observed, and there is an end to all morality, Aristotle's, Cicero's, or anybody's. And besides, of what use was it? For we bribed also. And as our bribes to those of the public being demonstrated out of Euclid to be as five shillings to sixpence, here again the young Oxford had the advantage. But the contest was ruinous to the principles of the stable establishment about the males. The whole corporation was constantly bribed, rebribed, and often sir-rebribed, so that a horsekeeper, ostler, or helper was held by the philosophical at that time to be the most corrupt character in the nation. There was an impression upon the public mind, natural enough from the continually augmenting velocity of the mail, but quite erroneous, that an outside seat on this class of carriages was a post of danger. On the contrary, I maintained that, if a man had become nervous from some gypsy prediction in his childhood, allocating to a particular moon now approaching some unknown danger, he should inquire earnestly, Whither can I go for shelter? Is a prison the safest retreat? or a lunatic hospital, or the British Museum? I should have replied, Oh no, I'll tell you what to do. Take lodgings for the next forty days on the box of His Majesty's mail. Nobody can touch you there. If it is by bills at ninety days after date that you are made unhappy, if noters and protesters are the sort of wretches whose astrological shadows darken the house of life, then note you what I vehemently protest viz that no matter though the sheriff in every county should be running after you with his posse touch a hair of your head he cannot whilst you keep house and have your legal domicile on the box of the mail it's felony to stop the mail even the sheriff cannot do that and an extra no great matter if it grazes the sheriff touch of the whip to the leaders at any time guarantees your safety in fact a bedroom in a quiet house seems a safe enough retreat Yet it is liable to its own notorious nuisances, to robbers by night, to rats, to fire. But the male laughs at these terrors. To robbers the answer is packed up and ready for delivery in the barrel of the guard's blunderbuss. Rats again. There are none about mail coaches, any more than snakes in Van Troil's Iceland. Except, indeed, now and then a parliamentary rat, who always hides his shame in the coal cellar. And, as to fire, I never knew but one in a mail-coach, which was in the Exeter mail, and caused by an obstinate sailor bound to Davenport. Jack, making light of the law and the lawgiver that had set their faces against his offence, insisted on taking up a forbidden seat in the rear of the roof, from which he could exchange his own yarns with those of the guard. No greater offence was then known to mail-coaches. It was treason. It was lysa majestas. It was by tendency arson, and the ashes of Jack's pipe, falling amongst the straw of the hinder boot, containing the mail-bags, raised a flame which, aided by the wind of our motion, threatened a revolution in the Republic of Letters. But even this left the sanctity of the box unviolated. In dignified repose, the coachman and myself sat on, resting with benign composure upon our knowledge that the fire would have to burn its way through four inside passengers before it could reach ourselves. 
With a quotation rather too trite, I remarked to the coachman, Yam proximus ardetu calegon. But recollecting that the Virgilian part of his education might have been neglected, I interpreted so far as to say that perhaps at that moment the flames were catching hold of our worthy brother and next-door neighbor Ukalegon. The coachman said nothing, but by his faint skeptical smile he seemed to be thinking that he knew better, for that in fact Ukalegon, as it happened, was not in the waybill. No dignity is perfect which does not at some point ally itself with the indeterminate and mysterious. The connection of the male with the state and the executive government, a connection obvious but not yet strictly defined, gave to the whole male establishment a grandeur and an official authority which did us service on the roads, and invested us with seasonable terrors. But perhaps these terrors were not the less impressive, because their exact legal limits were imperfectly ascertained. Look at those turnpike gates. With what deferential hurry, with what an obedient start, they fly open at our approach. Look at that long line of carts and carters ahead, audaciously usurping the very crest of the road. Ah, traitors, they do not hear us as yet. But as soon as the dreadful blast of our horn reaches them with the proclamation of our approach, see with what frenzy of trepidation they fly to their horses' heads, and deprecate our wrath by the precipitation of their crane-neck quarterings. Treason they feel to be their crime. Each individual carter feels himself under the ban of confiscation and attainder. His blood is attainted through six generations, and nothing is wanting but the headsman and his axe, the block and the sawdust, to close up the vista of his horrors. What? Shall it be within benefit of clergy to delay the king's message on the high road? To interrupt the great respirations, ebb or flood of the national intercourse? To endanger the safety of tidings running day and night between all nations and languages? Or can it be fancied, amongst the weakest of men, that the bodies of the criminals will be given up to their widows for Christian burial? Now the doubts which were raised as to our powers did more to wrap them in terror, by wrapping them in uncertainty, than could have been effected by the sharpest definitions of the law from the quarter sessions. We, on our parts, we, the collective male, I mean, did our utmost to exalt the idea of our privileges by the insolence with which we wielded them. Whether this insolence rested upon law that gave it a sanction, or upon conscious power haughtily dispensing with that sanction, equally it spoke from a potential station, and the agent in each particular insolence of the moment was viewed reverentially, as one having authority. Sometimes, after breakfast, His Majesty's mail would become frisky, and in its difficult wheelings amongst the intricacies of early markets, it would upset an apple cart, a cart loaded with eggs, etc. Huge was the affliction and dismay, awful was the smash, though, after all, I believe the damage might be levied upon the hundred. I, as far as possible, endeavoured in such a case to represent the conscience and moral sensibilities of the mail and, when wildernesses of eggs were lying poached under our horses' hooves, then would I stretch forth my hands in sorrow, saying, in words too celebrated in those days from the false echoes of Marengo, Ah, wherefore have we not time to weep over you? Which was quite impossible, for in fact we had not even time to laugh over them. 
Footnote regarding false echoes. Yes, false, for the words ascribed to Napoleon, as breathed to the memory of Desai, were never uttered at all. They stand in the same category of theatrical inventions as the cry of the foundering veneur, as the vaunt of General Cambron at Waterloo, la carte meurt, mais ne se rend pas, as the repartees of Talleyrand. End of footnote. Tied to post-office time, with an allowance in some cases of fifty minutes for eleven miles, could the Royal Mail pretend to undertake the offices of sympathy and condolence? Could it be expected to provide tears for the accidents of the road? If even it seemed to trample on humanity, it did so, I contended, in discharge of its own more peremptory duties. Upholding the morality of the mail, a fortiori, I upheld its rights, I stretched to the uttermost its privilege of imperial precedency, and astonished weak minds by the feudal powers which I hinted to be lurking constructively in the charters of this proud establishment. Once I remember being on the box of the Holyhead Mail, between Shrewsbury and Oswestry, when a tawdry thing from Birmingham, some tally-ho or high-flyer, all flaunting with green and gold, came up alongside of us. What a contrast to our royal simplicity of form and colour is this plebeian wretch! The single ornament on our dark ground of chocolate colour was the mighty shield of the imperial arms, but emblazoned in proportions as modest as a signet ring bears to a seal of office. Even this was displayed only on a single panel, whispering rather than proclaiming our relations to the state, whilst the beast from Birmingham had as much writing and painting on its sprawling flanks as would have puzzled a decipherer from the tombs of Luxor. For some time this Birmingham machine ran along by our side, a piece of familiarity that seemed to us sufficiently jacobinical. But all at once a movement of the horses announced a desperate intention of leaving us behind. "'Do you see that?' I said to the coachman. "'I see,' was his short answer. He was awake, yet he waited longer than seemed prudent, for the horses of our audacious opponent had a disagreeable air of freshness and power. But his motive was loyal. His wish was that the Birmingham conceit should be full-blown before he froze it. When that seemed ripe, he unloosed, or, to speak by a stronger image, he sprang his known resources. He slipped our royal horses like cheetahs or hunting leopards after the affrighted game. How they could retain such a reserve of fiery power after the work they had accomplished seemed hard to explain. But on our side, besides the physical superiority, was a tower of strength, namely the king's name, which they upon the adverse faction wanted. Passing them without an effort, as it seemed, we threw them into the rear with so lengthening an interval between us as proved in itself the bitterest mockery of their presumption, whilst our guard blew back a shattering blast of triumph that was really too painfully full of derision. I mention this little incident for its connection with what followed. A Welshman, sitting behind me, asked if I had not felt my heart burn within me during the continuance of the race. I said no, because we were not racing with a male, so that no glory could be gained. In fact, it was sufficiently mortifying that such a Birmingham thing should dare to challenge us. The Welshman replied that he didn't see that for that a cat might look at a king, and a Brummagem coach might lawfully race the Hollyhead mail. Race us, perhaps, I replied, 
though even that has an air of sedition, but not beat us. This would have been treason, and for its own sake I am glad that the tally-ho was disappointed. So dissatisfied did the Welshman seem with this opinion, that at last I was obliged to tell him a very fine story from one of our elder dramatists, viz. that once in some oriental region, when the prince of all the land with his splendid court were flying their falcons, a hawk suddenly flew at a majestic eagle, and in defiance of the eagle's prodigious advantages, in sight also of all the astonished field sportsmen, spectators and followers, killed him on the spot. The prince was struck with amazement at the unequal contest, and with burning admiration for its unparalleled result. He commanded that the hawk should be brought before him, caressed the bird with enthusiasm, and ordered that, for the commemoration of his matchless courage, a crown of gold should be solemnly placed on the hawk's head, but then that, immediately after this coronation, the bird should be led off to execution, as the most valiant indeed of traitors, but not the less a traitor that had dared to rise in rebellion against his liege lord the eagle. Now, said I to the Welshman, how painful it would have been to you and me as men of refined feelings, that this poor brute, the tally-ho, in the impossible case of a victory over us, should have been crowned with jewellery gold with Birmingham ware, or paste diamonds, and then led off to instant execution. The Welshman doubted if that could be warranted by law, and when I hinted at the tenth of Edward the third, chapter 15, for regulating the precedency of coaches, as being probably the statute relied on for the capital punishment of such offences, he replied dryly, that if the attempt to pass a mail was really treasonable, it was a pity that the tally-ho appeared to have so imperfect an acquaintance with law. These were among the gaieties of my earliest and boyish acquaintance with males. But alike the gayest and most terrific of my experiences rose again after years of slumber, armed with preternatural power to shake my dreaming sensibilities. Sometimes, as in the slight case of Miss Fanny on the Bath Road, which I will immediately mention, through some casual or capricious association with images originally gay, yet opening at some stage of evolution into sudden capacities of horror, sometimes through the more natural and fixed alliances with the sense of power so various lodged in the mail system. The modern modes of travelling cannot compare with the mail-coach system in grandeur and power. They boast of more velocity, but not, however, as a consciousness, but as a fact of our lifeless knowledge, resting upon alien evidence. As, for instance, because somebody says that we have gone fifty miles in the hour, or upon the evidence of a result, as that we actually find ourselves in York four hours after leaving London. Apart from such an assertion, or such a result, I am little aware of the pace. But, seated on the old mail-coach, we needed no evidence out of ourselves to indicate the velocity. On this system the word was non magna loquimur, as upon railways, but magna vivimus, the vital experience of the glad animal sensibilities made doubts impossible on the question of our speed. We heard our speed, we saw it, we felt it as a thrilling, and this speed was not the product of blind insensate agencies that had no sympathy to give, but was incarnated in the fiery eyeballs of an animal, in his dilated nostrils, spasmodic muscles, and echoing hooves. This speed was incarnated in the visible contagion amongst brutes of some impulse that, radiating into their natures, had yet its centre and beginning in man. 
the sensibility of the horse uttering itself in the maniac light of his eye might be the last vibration of such a movement the glory of salamanca might be the first but the intervening link that connected them that spread of the earthquake of the battle into the eyeball of the horse was the heart of man kindling in the rapture of the fiery strife and then propagating its own tumults by motions and gestures to the sympathies more or less dim in his servant the horse but now on the new system of travelling iron tubes and boilers have disconnected man's heart from the ministers of his locomotion nile nor trafalgar has power any more to raise an extra bubble in a steam kettle the galvanic cycle is broken up forever man's imperial nature no longer sends itself forward through the electric sensibility of the horse the interagencies are gone in the mode of communication between the horse and his master out of which grew so many aspects of sublimity under accidents of mists that hid or sudden blazes that revealed of mobs that agitated or midnight solitudes that awed tidings fitted to convulse all nations must henceforwards travel by culinary process and the trumpet that once announced from afar the laurelled mail, heart-shaking when heard screaming on the wind, and advancing through the darkness to every village or solitary house on its route, has now given way forever to the pot-wallopings of the boiler. Thus have perished multiform openings for sublime effects, for interesting personal communications, for revelations of impressive faces that could not have offered themselves amongst the hurried and fluctuating groups of a railway station. The gatherings of gazers about a mail-coach had one centre, and acknowledged only one interest. But the crowds attending at a railway station have as little unity as running water, and own as many centres as there are separate carriages in the train. How else, for example, than as a constant watcher for the dawn, and for the London mail that in summer months entered about dawn into the lawny thickets of Marlborough Forest, couldst thou, sweet Fanny of the Bath Road, have become known to myself? Yet Fanny, as the loveliest young woman for face and person that perhaps in my whole life I have beheld, merited the station which even her I could not willingly have spared, yet thirty-five years later she holds in my dreams and though by an accident of fanciful caprice she brought along with her into those dreams a troop of dreadful creatures fabulous and not fabulous that were more abominable to a human heart than fanny and the dawn were delightful miss fanny of the bath road strictly speaking lived at a mile's distance from that road but came so continually to meet the mail that i on my frequent transits rarely missed her and naturally connected her name with the great thoroughfare where i saw her i do not exactly know but i believe with some burthen of commissions to be executed in bath her own residence being probably the centre to which these commissions gathered the male coachman who wore the royal livery being one amongst the privileged few happened to be fanny's grandfather footnote regarding the privileged few the general impression was that this splendid costume belonged of right to the mail coachman as their professional dress but that was an error to the guard it did belong as a matter of course and was essential as an official warrant and a means of instant identification for his person in the discharge of his important public duties 
But the coachman, and especially if his place in the series did not connect him immediately with London and the general post office, obtained the scarlet coat only as an honorary distinction after long or special service. End of footnote. A good man he was that loved his beautiful granddaughter, and, loving her wisely, was vigilant over her deportment in any case where young Oxford might happen to be concerned. Was I then vain enough to imagine that I myself, individually, could fall within the line of his terrors? Certainly not, as regarded any physical pretensions that I could plead, for Fanny, as a chance passenger from her own neighbourhood once told me, counted in her train a hundred and ninety-nine professed admirers, if not open aspirants to her favour, and probably not one of the whole brigade but excelled myself in personal advantages. Ulysses, even, with the unfair advantage of his accursed bow, could hardly have undertaken that amount of suitors. So the danger might have seemed slight, only that woman is universally aristocratic. It is amongst her nobilities of heart that she is so. Now, the aristocratic distinctions in my favour might easily with Miss Fanny have compensated my physical deficiencies. Did I then make love to Fanny? Why, yes, may we don't as much love as one can whilst the male is changing horses, a process which ten years later did not occupy above eighty seconds. But then, viz. about Waterloo, it occupied five times eighty. Now four hundred seconds offer a field quite ample enough for whispering into a young woman's ear a great deal of truth, and, by way of parenthesis, some trifle of falsehood. Grandpapa did right, therefore, to watch me. And yet, as happens too often to the grandpapas of earth, in a contest with the admirers of granddaughters, how vainly would he have watched me had I meditated any evil whispers to Fanny. She, it is my belief, would have protected herself against any man's evil suggestions. But he, as the result showed, could not have intercepted the opportunities for such suggestions. Yet he was still active, he was still blooming, blooming he was as Fanny herself. Say, all our praises, why should lords... No, that's not the line. Say, all our roses, why should girls engross? The coachman showed rosy blossoms on his face, deeper even than his granddaughter's, his being drawn from the ale-cask, Fanny's from youth and innocence, and from the fountains of the dawn. But, in spite of his blooming face, some infirmities he had, and one particularly, I am very sure no more than one, in which he too much resembled a crocodile. This lay in a monstrous inaptitude for turning round. The crocodile, I presume, owes that inaptitude to the absurd length of his back, but in our grandpapa it arose rather from the absurd breadth of his back, combined, probably, with some growing stiffness in his legs. Now upon this crocodile infirmity of his I planted an easy opportunity for tendering my homage to Miss Fanny. In defiance of all his honourable vigilance, no sooner had he presented to us his mighty Jovian back, what a field for displaying to mankind his royal scarlet, whilst inspecting professionally the buckles, the straps, and the silver turrets of his harness, than I raised Miss Fanny's hand to my lips, and, by the mixed tenderness and respectfulness of my manner, caused her easily to understand how happy it would have made me to rank upon her list as number ten or number twelve, in which case a few casualties amongst her lovers, and observe they hanged liberally in those days, might have promoted me speedily to the top of the tree. 
as, on the other hand, with how much loyalty of submission I acquiesced in her allotment, supposing that she had seen reason to plant me in the very rearward of her favour, as number 199 plus 1, it must not be supposed that I allowed any trace of jest or even of playfulness to mingle with these expressions of my admiration. That would have been insulting to her, and would have been false as regarded my own feelings. In fact, the utter shadowiness of our relations to each other, even after our meetings through seven or eight years had been very numerous, but of necessity had been very brief, being entirely on mail-coach allowance, timid, in reality, by the general post-office, and watched by a crocodile belonging to the antepenultimate generation, left it easy for me to do a thing which few people ever can have done, viz. to make love for seven years, at the same time to be as sincere as ever creature was, and yet never to compromise myself by overtures that might have been foolish as regarded my own interests, or misleading as regarded hers. Most truly I loved this beautiful and ingenuous girl, and had it not been for the Bath and Bristol mail, heaven only knows what might have come of it. People talk of being over head and ears in love, now, the mail was the cause that I sank only over years in love, which, you know, still left a trifle of brain to overlook the whole conduct of the affair. I have mentioned the case at all, for the sake of a dreadful result from it in after years of dreaming. But it seems ex abundantani to yield this moral, viz. that as in England the idiot and the half were to held to be under the guardianship of chancery, so the man making love, who is often but a variety of the same imbecile class, ought to be made a ward of the general post-office, whose severe course of timing and periodical interruption might intercept many a foolish declaration, such as lays a solid foundation for fifty years' repentance. Our reader! When I look back upon those days, it seems to me that all things change or perish. Even thunder and lightning, it pains me to say, are not the thunder and lightning which I seem to remember about the time of Waterloo. Roses, I fear, are degenerating, and, without a red revolution, must come to the dust. The fannies of our island, though this I say with reluctance, are not improving, and the Bath Road is notoriously superannuated. Mr. Waterton tells me that the crocodile does not change, that a caiman, in fact, or an alligator, is just as good for riding upon as he was in the time of the pharaohs. That may be, but the reason is that the crocodile does not live fast. He is a slow coach. I believe it is generally understood amongst naturalists that the crocodile is a blockhead. It is my own impression that the pharaohs were also blockheads. Now, as the pharaohs and the crocodile domineered over Egyptian society, this accounts for a singular mistake that prevailed on the Nile. The crocodile made the ridiculous blunder of supposing man to be meant chiefly for his own eating. Man, taking a different view of the subject, naturally met that mistake by another. He viewed the crocodile as a thing sometimes to worship, but always to run away from. And this continued until Mr. Waterton changed the relations between the animals. The mode of escaping from the reptile he showed to be not by running away, but by leaping on its back, booted and spurred. The two animals had misunderstood each other. The use of the crocodile has now been cleared up. 
it is to be ridden, and the use of man is that he may improve the health of the crocodile by riding him a fox-hunting before breakfast. And it is pretty certain that any crocodile who has been regularly hunted through the season, and is master of the weight he carries, will take a six-barred gait now as well as ever he would have done in the infancy of the pyramids. Perhaps, therefore, the crocodile does not change, but all things else do. Even the shadow of the pyramids grows less. And often the restoration in vision of Fanny and the Bath Road makes me too pathetically sensible of that truth. Out of the darkness, if I happen to call up the image of Fanny from thirty-five years back, arises suddenly a rose in June. Or, if I think for an instant of the rose in June, uprises the heavenly face of Fanny. One after the other, like the antiphonies in the choral service, rises Fanny and the rose in June, then back again the rose in June and Fanny. Then come both together, as in a chorus, roses and Fannies, Fannies and roses, without end, thick as blossoms in paradise. Then comes a venerable crocodile, in a royal livery of scarlet and gold, or in a coat with sixteen capes, and the crocodile is driving four in hand from the box of the bath mail. And suddenly we upon the mail are pulled up by a mighty dial, sculptured with the hours, and with the dreadful legend of too late. Then all at once we are arrived at Marlborough Forest, amongst the lovely households of the roe-deer. These retire into the dewy thickets, the thickets are rich with roses, the roses call up, as ever, the sweet countenance of Fanny, who, being the granddaughter of a crocodile, awakens a dreadful host of wild, semi-legendary animals, griffins, dragons, basilisks, sphinxes, till at length the whole vision of fighting images crowds into one towering armorial shield, a vast emblazonry of human charities and human loveliness that have perished, but courted heraldically with unutterable horrors of monstrous and demoniac natures, whilst over all rises, as a surmounting crest, one fair female hand, with the forefinger pointing, in sweet sorrowful admonition, upwards to heaven, and having power, which, without experience, I never could have believed, to awaken the pathos that kills in the very bosom of the horrors that madden the grief that gnaws at the heart, together with the monstrous creations of darkness that shock the belief, and make dizzy the reason of man. Footnote regarding households of roe-deer. Roe-deer do not congregate in herds like the fallow or the red-deer, but by separate families, parents and children, which feature of approximation to the sanctity of human hearths, added to their comparatively miniature and graceful proportions, conciliate to them an interest of a peculiarly tender character, if less dignified by the grandeurs of savage and forest life? End of footnote. This is the peculiarity that I wish the reader to notice, as having first been made known to me for a possibility by this early vision of Fanny on the Bath Road. The peculiarity consisted in the confluence of two different keys, though apparently repelling each other, into the music and governing principles of the same dream. Horror, such as possesses the maniac, and yet, by momentary transitions, grief, such as may be supposed to possess the dying mother when leaving her infant children to the mercies of the cruel. Usually, and perhaps always, in an unshaken nervous system, these two modes of misery exclude each other. 
Here first they met in horrid reconciliation. There was also a separate peculiarity in the quality of the horror. This was afterwards developed into far more revolting complexities of misery and incomprehensible darkness, and perhaps I am wrong in ascribing any value as a causative agency to this particular case on the Bath Road. Possibly it furnished merely an occasion that accidentally introduced a mode of horrors certain to any rate to have grown up, with or without the Bath Road, from more advanced stages of the nervous derangement. Yet, as the cubs of tigers or leopards, when domesticated, have been observed to suffer a sudden development of their latent ferocity under too eager an appeal to their playfulness, the gaieties of sport in them being too closely connected with the fiery brightness of their murderous instincts, so I have remarked that the caprices, the gay arabesques, and the lovely floral luxuriations of dreams betray a shocking tendency to pass into finer maniacal splendours. That gaiety, for instance, for such as it first was, in the dreaming faculty, by which one principal point of resemblance to a crocodile in the male coachman was soon made to clothe him with the form of a crocodile, and yet was blended with accessory circumstances derived from his human functions, passed rapidly into a further development, no longer gay or playful, but terrific, the most terrific that besieges dreams, viz. the horrid inoculation upon each other of incompatible natures. This horror has always been secretly felt by man. It was felt even under pagan forms of religion, which offered a very feeble, and also very limited gamut for giving expression to the human capacities of sublimity or of horror. We read it in the fearful composition of the Sphinx. The dragon again is the snake inoculated upon the scorpion. The basilisk unites the mysterious malice of the evil eye, unintentional on the part of the happy agent, with the intentional venom of some other malignant natures. But these horrid complexities of evil agency are but objectively horrid. They inflict the horror suitable to their compound nature, but there is no insinuation that they feel that horror. Heraldry is so full of these fantastic creatures that, in some zoologies, we find a separate chapter or a supplement dedicated to what is denominated heraldic zoology. And why not? For these hideous creatures, however visionary, have a real traditionary ground in medieval belief, sincere and partly reasonable, though adulterating with mendacity, blundering, credulity, and intense superstition. Footnote regarding hideous creatures, however visionary. But are they always visionary? The unicorn, the kraken, the sea serpent are all, perhaps, zoological facts. The unicorn, for instance, so far from being a lie, is rather too true. For, simply as a monocaras, he is found in the Himalaya, in Africa and elsewhere, rather too often for the peace of what in Scotland would be called the intending traveller. That which really is a lie in the account of the unicorn, viz. his legendary rivalship with the lion, which lie may God preserve, in preserving the mighty imperial shield that embalms it, cannot be more destructive to the zoological pretensions of the unicorn than are to the same pretensions in the lion our many popular crazes about his goodness and magnanimity, or the old fancy, adopted by Spencer and noticed by so many among our elder poets, of his graciousness to maiden innocence. The rich is the basest and most cowardly among the forest tribes, 
nor has the sublime courage of the English bulldog ever been so memorably exhibited as in his hopeless fight at Warwick with the cowardly and cruel lion called Wallace. Another of the traditional creatures, still doubtful, is the mermaid, upon which Southey once remarked to me that, if it had been differently named, as suppose a mer-ape, nobody would have questioned its existence any more than that of sea-cows, sea-lions, etc. The mermaid has been discredited by her human name and her legendary human habits. If she would not coquette so much with melancholy sailors, and brush her hair so assiduously upon solitary rocks, she would be carried on our books for as honest a reality, as decent a female, as many that are assessed to the poor rates. End of footnote. But the dream horror which I speak of is far more frightful. The dreamer finds housed within himself, occupying, as it were, some separate chamber in his brain, holding perhaps from that station a secret and detestable commerce with his own heart, some horrid alien nature. What if it were his own nature repeated? Still, if the duality were distinctly perceptible, even that, even this mere numerical double of his own consciousness, might be a curse too mighty to be sustained. But how, if the alien nature contradicts his own, fights with it, perplexes, confounds it? How again, if not one alien nature, but two, but three, but four, but five, are introduced within what once he thought the inviolable sanctuary of himself? These, however, are horrors from the kingdoms of anarchy and darkness, which, by their very intensity, challenge the sanctity of concealment, and gloomily retire from exposition. Yet it was necessary to mention them, because the first introduction to such appearances, whether causal or merely casual, lay in the heraldic monsters, which monsters were themselves introduced, though playfully, by the transfigured coachman of the Bath Mail. End of the English Mail Coach or the Glory of Motion, Part 1 Recording by Tim McKenzie